let's all take a moment and just be thankful that your boy has decent audio set up because right now y'all can't hear it because I've blocked out the noise but all I can hear is the locust and the crickets just all up in my ear I promise you it's gonna bug me get it bug me because it's locusts and crickets but maybe y'all understand what I'm saying. I bet y'all probably hearing the same thing if y'all out in the South and you got a lot of bugs. But we gonna power through it. You wanna know why? Because we got some really cool stuff to look at. Some really important stuff, actually. Romans 9 brings us some really important teachings about the relationship between God, humanity, and our will and the choices that we get to make. It's actually very, very important to how we live our lives and how we view our relationship with God. Now, reading through Romans 9, we're in the middle section, right? We're going through 14 through 21 today, but it brings these questions to my mind. The first question is, are we God's pawns? Like, do we just do whatever God wants us to do? Or do we get a say in our next move? Better yet, here's something else in Romans 9. Do we get to play God and determine who is holy enough for salvation? Is every action I take already determined? Is it already in the script and I'm just following along? And if it is, if this is what Romans 9 teaches, how is it possible for me to get punished for something I have no control over? These are some of the questions that we're going to be tackling today, and these are questions that the recipients of Paul's letter to the Roman people most likely would have been asking, and if not them, then definitely people to follow. But before we hop into this, real quick, hit that share button on the podcast, copy the link, send it to one of your friends, share it on Facebook or Instagram, share the podcast with your friends and family because The Word of God and these teachings are not just meant to be kept to ourselves. Far too often we can fall into this trap, especially since we live in this individualistic modern world. We can fall into this trap where we only listen to sermons, we only go to church, we only do this, that, and the other for our own gain and our own benefit. And what we have to realize, especially when we're reading something like Romans, we have to realize that the culture that that Romans was written in was a community culture. There was no such thing as just taking this gem of a letter from Paul for yourself and just getting what you need out of it and then passing it on. No, no, no. It it was a community thing. These, These letters were read aloud and they were shared amongst all the people because this is important stuff. So share this with your friends and family, but we're going to hop into this. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 21. We're going to read through that little passage, and then we're going to break it down like we always do. All right, verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the years. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? All right. Verse 14. This is a good one. And we're going to try and answer these questions that got posed at the start of this episode. So verse 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So remember what Paul's referencing here is at the beginning of chapter 9. Paul is explaining to the Jews in Rome that even though Abraham was given the promise, that God still has the authority to choose who receives it. Like just because you were born into the lineage doesn't mean that you're guaranteed the promise. God still has the sovereign authority to either put people into the promise or take people out. And in this instance, those who freely align their faith with Abraham's faith are considered children of the promise, regardless of if they're his physical descendants. And Paul even uses a more straightforward example of the same idea, where God can just choose one or the other. He gives the example of Jacob and Esau earlier in chapter 9. And he has this quote, and this quote is what ends in verse 13, is says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. So God chose Jacob instead of Esau. Now we have to remember that neither were born at this point. They had no chance to do right or wrong. So it wasn't like Jacob was just killing it, doing a good job. And God was like, Hey, yo, Jacob, you, my boy, I love you. No, no, no. They were both as far as, as far as we can see, they were equal, clean slates and God chose Jacob instead of Esau. Now, this is what Paul is answering to in verse 14, because most people would read that and say, yo, this seems unfair. Like, like, dang, God, you can't just arbitrarily lift up one while lowering the other in. For some, it may even make them feel like, hey, yo, we're not just pawns in your little game, God. So these very sentiments These are the things that Paul is about to uh, refute throughout the next few verses, but we need to take a step back and understand why Paul is saying all of this in the first place. Why is Paul bringing up Abraham and, and Isaac being chosen and Esau not being chosen? Why is Paul bringing all of this up in the first place? Well, if you remember last episode, in verse 4, Paul is telling the Israelites that, yo, the the adoption belonged to them. The glory belongs to them. The covenants, the law, the promises. Paul is not only sharing common knowledge amongst the Jews, right? Because obviously they knew this. But Paul is highlighting their beliefs about themselves and their relation to God's promise. Because we have to remember, Israel, the Jewish people, they were God's chosen people. And in their minds, the promise was theirs and theirs alone. It wasn't, it wasn't passed around to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, which just means non-Jewish people, the people that didn't receive the Torah, the Gentiles were excluded from any and everything in the minds of the Jews. And in a sense, you can understand why they think this. Because the Torah set in place restrictions that separated Israel from all other people. They had to dress different. They had to eat different. They worshiped different. They had to act in their relationships differently. They had to treat servants with love and respect. And they looked out for the poor. And these were things that set them apart from the surrounding nations, especially the the nations who were sacrificing their children 
And so the, the Jewish people had this outlook on the Gentiles that they were unclean, they were unworthy, that they didn't receive the law, God did not reveal or choose them, so the only people deserving of the promise is Israel. And you see this type of ideology echoed in Matthew 15. And this is one of the famous passages where Jesus calls a woman a dog. And in one of my previous episodes, we explained what this meant. Um, So I'm not going to get into too much detail there. But to kind of reiterate the story in Matthew 15, this woman is crying out to Jesus to heal her daughter back home. And the disciples get annoyed because she's bothering him. It literally says that they were getting annoyed because she was bothering them. And so what Jesus does is he takes this moment as an instance of teaching because you have this Gentile woman who is crying to a Jewish Jesus and his Jewish disciples are like, yo, what what is this chick doing, bro? She's a Gentile. She's bothering us. Can we tell her to leave Jesus? And Jesus, instead of just immediately reprimanding them, he decides to echo their preconceived notions about this Gentile woman. And he calls her a dog and he does this um, to just show how utterly wrong and brutal it is for the disciples to think that way. And also it's a way to test the woman. But as you can see in this story and throughout many other instances, in the eyes of the Jewish people, the promise was only for them. And definitely not for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were beneath them. And so this is why Paul says, hey, remember how God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, even though they were both Abraham's sons? Remember how he chose Jacob over Esau, even though they were both a part of the lineage of the promise and Esau did not do anything wrong yet? What Paul does is he sets the president using their own scripture to show that God has a right to include or exclude whoever he wants. So what implications does this have on them? Well, what this means for the Jewish people in Rome is that these Gentiles who are making up this church, who they probably are looking down upon, Paul's saying that God has the right to include them in the promise, but he also has the right to exclude Israel the Jewish people from the promise, if he wants. And Paul's going to go into this um, in chapters 11 and 12, and we'll get to that in a few more episodes. But on to verse 15. Paul says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul is quoting here from Exodus 33, verse 19. And in Exodus 33, 19, it says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, many of us, when we read verse 16, this is one of them verses that you'll write down and you'll memorize and you'll just kind of repeat like, yeah, God will have mercy. You know, it doesn't depend on my human will, but on God who has mercy, it makes us feel good. And and that's true. It's true that the grace and mercy we receive has nothing to do with how bad we want it or what we do to try and earn it. But if we are not careful, we can miss Paul's entire point by just applying verse 16 to our own individual life and taking it out of context. Because what Paul is doing is Paul is speaking directly to the Jews in Rome 
in this chapter and in this particular verse because he is having to explain why the Gentiles can now receive the promise. So when Paul points out that, hey, human will and exertion, what Paul is doing is he's referring back to the Torah because for the Jews before Jesus, they believed their path to righteousness was by following the Torah. Not by simply just having faith in God, but by following the law and keeping the law. And what that did is that required works. That required human will and exertion. And this point that Paul is making is more apparent if you read Romans backwards. At the beginning of our Romans breakdown, I think in the very first episode, I talked about how it's important to actually read Romans backwards. Like read Romans starting from chapter 16 all the way back because the later chapters give so much context as to what Paul is saying earlier on. But if we read in in chapter 14, you'll notice that Paul is having to deal with some conflict in the Roman church because you have the Jewish believers trying to have the Gentile believers follow the Torah. They're saying that that's the way to salvation, that they have to keep Sabbath, that they have to be circumcised, that they have to eat kosher. They have to do all these things following the Torah. And so this is what Paul is pointing at. He's saying, hey, this, this compassion and mercy that God has to allow you into the promise, it does not depend on what you do. It doesn't depend on if you follow the law of the Torah or not. But this grace and mercy is completely independent of human will or works. So the following of the law can no longer be held over someone's head as a way of judging their righteousness or salvation. That is what Paul's trying to point out to the Jewish believers. He's saying, hey, you can't do this. You can't force the Torah on these Gentile believers because God's grace has nothing to do with the law, has nothing to do with it. It's completely unmerited. That's the literal definition of grace, is that it's unmerited. We There's nothing we can do to earn it because if we could earn it by works, it wouldn't be called grace. It'd be called a paycheck. And that's not how it works. So on to verse 17, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay. If I'm going to be honest with you, this, this was one of the harder things for me to get comfortable with. There's Trust me, there's a lot of things in the Bible that don't always make sense because we're not in that culture, but... This was one that was hard for me because I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, so you're telling me that God can literally just harden someone's heart to where they do wrong. It's like, like God can just do that. And, and, and it seemed wrong. It seemed like it was against God's nature. But oftentimes when I come against these things in the Bible and, and my first thought is God What you're doing seems wrong. It doesn't seem right. The best thing I can do is come to the conclusion that my notion of what God is doing must be incorrect. If I'm questioning the nature of God, if I'm questioning whether or not God is doing something right or wrong, 
then automatically I can know that there's a flaw in my thinking and I need to do further study. So that's what I did. And there's a few things that should be understood about the hardening of one's heart, especially when it comes to God. So let's go ahead and take a look at the example that Paul gives. He gives us the example of Pharaoh. And in Exodus 9 in particular, we hear of Pharaoh's heart being hardened four separate times. And I'm going to go through those four, and we're going to try and figure out what's going on here. So the first one, this is right after Moses says his famous line. If y'all watch the Prince of Egypt, you know that song? Let my people go. Right after Moses says this, (laughs) he says, let my people go, or else a plague will fall upon Egypt's livestock, but not Israel's livestock. And what happened in Exodus chapter 9, verse 7, is Pharaoh sent... And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but all of Pharaoh's livestock was dead. All of Egypt's livestock was dead. It was one of the plagues that God sent. So what happened? Well, the text says that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, but he did not let the people go. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in this instance, it was Pharaoh himself who hardened his heart after he saw what happened to his livestock. The second time, This was the sixth plague where God sent boils. Ugh, gross, first of all, okay? (laughs) But it spread across Egypt. And in chapter 9, verse 12, it says this, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, and the Lord had spoken to Moses. Okay, so this time, it was God that hardened the heart of Pharaoh. All right, so here's the third time. And this is where the seventh plague, where God, through Moses, sent down hail and fire upon Egypt. And after this happened, Pharaoh seems to concede. In chapter 9, verse 27, Pharaoh says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So after Pharaoh says this, Moses is like, All right. And he says, Once I leave the city, he will stop the hail. And look at verse 34, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So this time, Pharaoh is the one hardening his heart. He got ticked off for whatever reason. (laughs) And he sinned yet again and hardened his own heart. And here's the fourth time in chapter 9. In verse 35, it says, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Okay, so we see in chapter 9 alone, when Pharaoh's heart got hardened, he was the one hardening his heart three out of the four times. God only did it once. And in chapter 8, if you read back in chapter 8, you'll see that Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart again, multiple times. And what's interesting is, is in Exodus chapter 4, so before all this happens in verse 21, God said this, he says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So what's going on here? Is it God doing the hardening or is it Pharaoh? And the answer is yes, (laughs) it's both. What we see here is that Pharaoh was laying the foundation of sin and anger and disobedience against God and his people. That's why Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart. That's what is meaning. Pharaoh is taking action against God on his own prerogative in his heart. He's hardening his heart. And the mistake that we can make is thinking that God's hardening 
when God hardens his heart, it means that he's forcing us to act against our will or character. So check this out, right? The very definition of hardening is to solidify something in its current state. That's what it means. So Pharaoh's current state, because Pharaoh hardened his own heart and sinned against God, Pharaoh's current state was disobedience and hatred towards God. So when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's not making Pharaoh do something he otherwise wouldn't. He's not forcing Pharaoh to be evil when Pharaoh's just trying to praise the Lord. He's not doing that. God is simply just expediting that process. God is simply just just pausing, in a sense, Pharaoh's heart in the condition that Pharaoh put it in. If you notice, the Greek word that Paul uses for hardening in his quote is skleronu, which literally just means stubborn. So God is not arbitrarily forcing Pharaoh to be evil when he's really good. He's using the evil actions of Pharaoh to achieve his ultimate good. He's just solidifying Pharaoh in the current state that Pharaoh chose for himself in order for God's ultimate good to be brought to his people. That's how the hardening is used here. It's not God going out and taking a bunch of of faithful Christians and saying, hey, I'm just going to harden your heart so you reject me because I need that for my plan. That's not what God's doing. That's not at all what he's doing. On to verse 19. It says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts in Romans 9, I I probably have to say. And I'm going to do my best to explain the nuance of the potter clay analogy that Paul's using. But we I, I want to I want to highlight something. Because I'm not trying I'm not trying to break down the potter and the clay as an answer for the question that Paul raises. Cuz Paul raises this question in anticipation for what you, I or the Roman people reading this would say and where they would say well, how can God still find fault? How can he still judge us for what we do? Because if God is just hardening people's heart and if God is the potter and we're simply the clay, like who can resist his will? Who can go against an all-powerful God if this is what he's determined? And so Paul prepares this uh, objection and he's ready to answer this expected rebuttal. And his answer is the only one that matters. Even though I'm gonna give you some nuance in the answer to the potter and clay. I just want to put this straightforward that Paul's answer is the only one that matters. If you take anything away from this whole episode, what Paul says right about here is the only thing that matters. Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? If I were to put that in an even more elementary language, Paul's saying, who on earth do you think you are? What right do we have as an evil, sinful, ignorant human race to even challenge or question the creator of the universe? That's Paul's answer. Because look, God created 
a universe that is so inconceivably complex that for all of human history, we haven't even scraped the top 1% of the surface of what can be known. We can't even predict how our actions towards one person in our everyday life is going to affect a multitude of people throughout that day. Yet we try and shake our fist at God because he doesn't use us how we think we should be used. Paul is trying to put us back in perspective, saying, little, little man, little boy, little girl, who do you think you are? To try and snap back at God. We need to have the attitude of what John the Baptist had. And we hear this in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 27. John the Baptist says, yo, someone's coming. He says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandal." So Paul's answer to their objection of, oh, well, how can God do this? It's not fair. Paul's answer is simple. He says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That's the only answer that matters is how can we, who don't have ultimate knowledge, how can we even begin to question how God decides to use us or not use us or promote us or demote us? Who are we to question that? So that's the real answer. But I still want to look at the potter and clay analogy because it has some hyperlinks to the writings of the prophets in the Tanakh. And if you don't know, I don't think I've ever covered this yet. So if you don't know, the Tanakh is the composition of what we call the Old Testament. It's actually how the ancient Jewish people, so Jesus and the apostles, it's how they're Bible, their scripture, their writings were set up. In our Old Testament, it's a little bit different because we'll have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And then after that, we'll have the history. And then we go to later on the prophets and our Old Testament ends with the prophets. But that's not how the ancient Jewish people crafted their scrolls and their texts together. They had it a little bit different. They had the Torah, and then after that, they had the prophets. And some of what's in their prophets is what our Old Testament wouldn't even consider as prophets. And this is for a whole nother episode on why this is. It's actually really, really cool. But their composition of their, what we call the Old Testament, is completely laid out differently. And the reason why that's important is because when you read it in the sequence that they had it set up in, you see a lot of hyperlinks. You see how certain scrolls that proceed and come after each other share common themes that just get broken up in the Christian Old Testament. But I want to look at this Potter Clay analogy because it has some hyperlinks to um, the book of Jeremiah. And this is found in Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 10. And look what he says about the potter and the clay. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? 
Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So Jeremiah has the same idea of a potter having a right to do with the clay. It's the same idea that Paul's using, and I I truly do think Paul's pulling from Jeremiah here. And what's interesting is that in this illustration in Jeremiah, the potter had an original plan for the clay. But as Jeremiah tells us, the clay was spoiled or or marred. And this is interesting because this implies that the potter cannot fulfill his original intention, not because he just arbitrarily changes his mind, not because the clay was, was good and it was working like it was supposed to, but he just wants to change it. But he can't fulfill his original intention because the clay that he works with got spoiled. So now instead of the potter just simply destroying the clay and saying, I forget you, he uses it for another purpose. And if we're being honest, we are all spoiled clay. And we should be so grateful beyond measure that God doesn't throw us out because we're spoiled clay, but he decides to still use us. And what this tells us, this illustration in Jeremiah, this tells us that God's judgment, that God's decision to do with his clay what he chooses, God's decision to harden or not harden certain hearts has purpose. And for the Jews in Rome, it has bigger implications. Because God tells Israel here in Jeremiah, he says, can I not do with you as this potter has done? implying that, hey, Israel, do I not have the right to do whatever I want with you? That's what God's posing the question here. So when when Paul compares God to a potter and Israel as the clay, he is letting the Jewish people in Rome know this, that God has the authority to make Israel into whatever he chooses. If that means bringing in Gentiles, then that's what God can do because it's his clay. If that means getting rid of some of the original Israelites who have no faith, that's his prerogative, because it's his clay. And to me, when you come to this realization that God has the perfect sovereign authority to literally do whatever he wants with us, if he wants to pluck us from this earth, he can. If he wants to use us for greatness, he can. If he wants us to be the bus driver for the rest of our life that brings joy to the kids who are depressed, he can. See, what we have to get out of our mind, especially in this modern world where everyone's supposed to be who they want to be and you can do anything you put your mind to, what we have to remember is that everyone's not meant to be king. Everyone's not meant to be queen. Everyone is not meant to be rich. Everyone is not meant to be a CEO. Everyone is not meant to have a flourishing, booming mega church and ministry. Everyone is not meant for that. 
because if if God's whole purpose, as we seem to teach this in the prosperity gospel, if God's whole purpose is to literally just bless you with any and everything you want to make you wealthy and healthy, if that's his purpose, then who on earth is going to go minister to, to people across the globe? Who on earth is going to minister to the homeless man where you would normally be walking past him on your way to work? where you could bless him and, and and talk to him. Oh, but no, no, no. Now God blessed you with health and wealth. So you chilling. Like if everyone has everything, if if God's purpose as a potter is to make everyone as a cup that overflows, but no one's a, a plate or a fork or a spoon to help support. You, you see what I'm trying to say here? God can do what he wants with you. And we need to trust in God's judgment to be thankful for whatever God chooses to use you as. So that's what Paul essentially is trying to tell the Jewish people. God can let whoever he wants into the promise and he can kick whoever he wants out. And for Paul, especially in the next few chapters of Romans, which we'll get into, you will see that his message is basically this, is that you have no right to say Who can or can't enter God's kingdom? You have no right to say that. And if you try to remember that God can easily exclude you if he so chooses, then maybe you'll be a little bit more hesitant to try and point the finger and say that this group of people or this group of people will not be saved because God, being the potter and you being the clay, can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants.